Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Saturday, March 3rd, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Every, um, once in a while I wake up on, on a Saturday morning having no idea what I'm going to present that evening. This was one of those mornings and I figured out about 9 a.m. what I was going to do and I didn't really start on it and probably until about 2 p.m. with all the distractions I allowed myself today. That's okay because every once in a while I should get back to Christian Identity Basics and this is one of those presentations. This is Christian Identity. What difference does it make? I noticed in my upcoming folder where 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 I stuff things that I would like to do in the near future, I noticed this little sermon by Inez Compare, and I thought I would expand on it to a great degree. Her original sermon is only like two pages, I think, and I have a page and a half of Clifton's notes on it, and... I tried to expound on it to the greatest degree that I could. It is no mistake that 2,000 years ago, Christianity spread and was accepted by tribes of white Europeans as they encountered its spread. It is no mistake that for the last 1,500 years, Europe has been predominantly Christian. Christianity had spread not only to both Greece and Rome, but also to Britain and other points in Europe as early as the middle of the first century. Tribes in Gaul were converting to Christianity in the second century. By the third century, if not sooner, Germanic tribes of the Goths and Alans had all accepted Christianity. Or I should say, had accepted Christianity, not quite all of them. It took another eight or nine hundred years for it to reach some of them. All of this was long before the official acceptance of Christianity began with Constantine the Great, the Edict of Toleration, and the Council of Nicaea. To mock Christianity today is to mock a hundred generations of our ancestors. People who mock Christianity think they know something better about our past than their own ancestors, the people who actually lived in those times many centuries ago. The truth is that people who mock Christianity know little to nothing about the world of the past and the circumstances under which their ancestors had ultimately accepted Christianity. There are many incongruities, I'll use that word for two podcasts in a row, there are many incongruities in the perception of the people who mock Christianity today. On one hand, they claim that it is a cuck religion, and on the other they complain that their ancestors were forced into Christianity by Christians. So they admit that their own ancestors were weaker than the cucks that they despise. 
On one hand, they claim that Christianity is an effeminate religion and a Jewish religion. But then they complain that their ancestors were forced into it by Christians, so they admit that their ancestors were weaker than effeminates and Jews. All the while, they proclaim the might is right mantra of their own neo-paganism, while professing that their weak-assed ancestors, forced to subject to Christianity, were somehow treated unfairly. What a bunch of clowns. Those who mock Christianity are simply too stupid to realize all of these cognitive disconnects. And there are many more that we won't get into here. We already presented them here a few years ago in two podcasts titled White Nationalist Cognitive Dissonance. The truth is that our ancestors accepted Christianity because they had tangible historical connections to the people of the Old Testament. The Jews are not those people. The Jews are mixed-race bastards, descended from the few who were left behind. Look at modern America. In the late 1960s and 70s, non-white alien immigrants began pouring into American cities. In the North, it was probably worse, as tens of thousands of Negroes, or maybe hundreds of thousands of Negroes, a black plague from the South, had already moved into those same cities in the 1950s and 60s. I'm not saying that the Yankees didn't deserve it. So we had white flight, as millions of whites abandoned those cities and moved out into the suburbs. But the whites who were left behind, many of them are now mixed-race bastards because their parents stayed in the cities and accepted and mingled with the aliens. The same process happened in the Middle and Near East and in Northern Africa. From as early as 2000 BC this began. And today we see the results. First it was Sumer, then Egypt, then Ethiopia. And with the decay of the Byzantine Empire and the rise of Islam, which was a Jewish ploy, an entire white world became overrun and bastardized and is now many different shades of brown. We, the descendants of the survivors, may be the children of those who fled for refuge, but that does not mean that we should consign our inheritance to bastards. Either we are the children of God, and our God is the enemy of the Jews. Or the Jews are actually his people, and God is really a nasty old Jew. The ancient world was a white world, and those white people, those white people who inhabited it, had a common origin. In the first century BC, Diodorus Siculus embarked on his extensive and learned library of history with an attempt to demonstrate how the Assyrian, Ethiopian, Egyptian, and Greek cultures all had a relatively common mythological heritage. And of course this is true, but it is poorly understood. All of these people were originally white and they did indeed have a common heritage. 
but modern people usually dismiss Diodorus as a bearer of tales because they themselves are ignorant of the facts that underlie his assertions. Disregarding the Bible, whites in Europe ha as a culture have about 2,700 years of accumulated literature. Sadly, we know of much more that than what has actually survived the ages. However, enough has survived to give us a clear enough picture of ancient history and the general development of our race into the earlier societies. The Greek, the Roman, the Assyrian, the Babylonian, the Egyptian, the Persian, the Parthian. Today we can make one of two basic choices. If we accept the popular choice, we dismiss our own ancient literature and we mold our worldview from the findings of the so-called sciences, such as genetic science, archaeology, and anthropology. These sciences are in the hands of our enemies. These sciences are subject to politicization to the biased interpretations of, of people who start off with bad assumptions, ill-begotten premises, and agendas favoring the popular ideals of egalitarianism, multiculturalism, and diversity. The second and less popular choice is to examine the ancient writings of our own people to appreciate the fact that generations of our ancestors had felt that those writings were valuable enough to preserve and to come to understand our ancient world according to these worthy witnesses of our own race. Once we understand the Greek and Roman classics, then we can learn to reach back even further, realizing that the biblical literature represents an even earlier phase of that same tradition. And there's other sources, the Sumerian and Babylonian inscriptions, the Assyrian inscriptions. Many people think that they conflict with scripture. They don't conflict with scripture at all. The Egyptian mortuary inscriptions, actually, they reinforce scripture. Once you have the proper Weltanschauung worldview, you may understand that. Discussing Paul's description of Moses and the events of the Exodus, we elucidated the fact that five ancient historians, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. The following is, this is based upon an excerpt from a summary of part of our commentary on Paul's epistle to the Hebrews given here sometime last year. Discussing Paul's description of Moses and the events of the Exodus, we elucidated the fact that five ancient historians, four of them pagans, had accepted the accounts of Moses and the Exodus as being historical in nature. Three of these are Flavius Josephus, a Judean, and the pagan Greek writers Strabo of Cappadocia and Diodorus Siculus, both of whom wrote before the time of Christ. Not long before, but before.
Strabo died in 25 AD. The ministry of Christ didn't start until 28 AD. Theodore Siculus wrote until up about 35 BC or in there. None of these witnesses were Christians, and none of them, not even Josephus, were what we may fairly consider to be Jewish. Then from Josephus we saw that a pagan Egyptian writer of the 3rd century BC named Manetho also accepted Moses and the Exodus account as being historical, and correctly dated it to the pharaohs of the 18th dynasty. Finally, through Diodorus Siculus, we saw that another pagan Greek writer in Egypt named Hecatahius of Abdera had also accepted the accounts of Moses and the Exodus as being historical. He wrote, I believe, in the 4th century BC. Although the version of the Exodus account given by Hecatahius was more accommodating to the Egyptians, it had political spin on it. Now we can say that so was the version given by Manetho, which is something that Josephus had overlooked. We'll forgive him for that. Now I shall elaborate on this with a few passages <coughs> that I wrote in a part of our commentary on the book of Amos, given here in February of 2013. The Greek historian of the first century, Theodorus Siculus, mentioned Moses as a historical figure and the Exodus as a historical event. He also accounted Moses as a founder of cities. He explained that Moses was a lawgiver and compared him to other famous ancient lawgivers, such as the Cretan Minos, we'll mention him again shortly, the Spartan Lycurgus, Zalmoxis of the Gede, the Egyptian Sasikia, and the Persian Zarathustra. Now, while he considered some of the laws attributed to Moses to be barbaric, or actually, in the Greek, misanthropic, and even xenophobic, or actually, in the Greek, misozenic, which is hostile to strangers, he nonetheless fully accepted their historicity, and from multiple historical sources of his own. What is also evident is that Diodorus Siculus accepted the Exodus account as a significant part in the greater story of the founding of what we would call Western civilization. Diodorus quoted from the earlier historian, Hecatahius of Abdera, the Greek historian and skeptic philosopher of the 4th century BC, who gave a strange account of the Israelite exodus from an ostensibly Egyptian viewpoint, where he says that the aliens were driven from the country, and the most outstanding and active among them banded together, and, as some say, they were cast ashore in Greece and certain other regions. Their leaders were notable men, chief among them being Danos and Cadmus. But the greater number were driven into what is now called Judea. The colony was headed by a man called Moses, outstanding both for his wisdom and for his courage, writing in the 4th century BC. Judea at that time and that's long before the time of the Maccabees, 
was only a weak little colony of returnees from Babylon who were under the Persian yoke until the time of Alexander when Alexander came and conquered the Persian Empire and took most of it and folded it into his own empire. So Hecatahius had no evident, no obvious, no compulsory political moment, mo political motive to suck up to the Jews, if I could put it that way, because they weren't really Jews at that time. Hecatahius had no obvious reason or political compulsion to make such glowing statements about Moses unless they were true or unless he perceived them as true and he was simply being an honest historian. Strabo, Strabo of Cappadocia, Strabo the geographer, another Greek historian and he was a historian in his own right. He had, he had written a history of Assyria that is sadly lost to time. Strabo considered Moses to be a historical figure and wrote about him at length and described him as a pious and devout founder of a civil society in Judea centered around Jerusalem. Like Diodorus Siculus, Strabo also counted Moses among those of his own list of esteemed prophets, lawgivers, and philosophers, whom he attributed with the beginnings of what we would call again Western civilization, where he listed him notably among those of the Greeks, Romans, Assyrians, Persians, Gede, and others. I'm referring to Geography Book 16. All of my citations are in the notes. The implications of the descriptions of the Exodus by Diodorus Siculus are profound once we truly absorb the importance of his words. Here is a man who was well read beyond his peers, who selected what he thought were the best available accounts of antiquity and endeavored to compile them into an overall narrative summarizing the history of the world up to his own time. That was a ambitious endeavor. He finished it in 40 books, almost half of which are lost. And here we see him attributing the foundation of Greek society in the figures of Danos and Cadmus to those who were expelled from Egypt with Moses and the Israelites. So it must also be noted that a proud Greek such as Diodorus Siculus Diodorus of Sicily, which was mostly inhabited by Dorian Greeks at that time and Romans. A proud Greek such as Diodorus Siculus was not bothered by the connection of the dawn of Greek civilization to the Hebrews. Danos was the eponymous ancestor of the Danans, the bearers of Mycenaean civilization and the warriors who conquered the Trojans. The tragic poets have actually made satires, I would consider them satires, of the legends that the Danans came from Egypt 
they actually portrayed the Danans as a bunch of bitches who were fleeing the Egyptians. Sounds like the Exodus to me, from an Egyptian viewpoint. Cadmus was a Phoenician. He was a Phoenician prince and the brother of Phoenix and Kelix. Now, Phoenix is a famous name throughout Greek and European history. Phoenix was the father of Europa in some accounts and the brother of Europa in others. Some of the Greek accounts are confused. They were handed down for over a thousand years orally before they were ever recorded on paper. Kelix is the famous Phoenician for whom Kalikia is named, and Europa, and Cadmus was the uncle of Minos and Sarpedon, and the founder of Thebes in Greece. Of course, Minos was the famous king of Crete, for whom the Minotaur was named. These are among the earliest legendary founders of European civilization in both myth and reality. The ancient Greeks described the Phoenicians as being fair and blonde, and the Danans as being fair and golden-haired as well, and Diodorus connects them to Moses. But that is only the beginning, and we have many other connections in both the Bible and classical literature. So if Cadmus and Danos are who the Greeks believe them to be, and all early Greek writers are very much in agreement on these things, then Moses could not have been a Jew, at least as we know the Jews of today. But the truth is that the people of Judah were originally white, and the Jews of today are perverted, mixed-race bastards who have taken white literature, which we know is the Bible, and have perverted all the interpretations of it into a twisted mess. What difference does it make? It makes a world of difference. We cannot surrender our ancient heritage to Jews, just as much as we cannot surrender our modern heritage to niggers. We have sufficient historical proof to demonstrate that these Jews are mixed-race Edomites and they are by no means Judah. The Apostle James wrote an epistle which we have in our Bibles, which is addressed to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, not to ten, not to nine and a half, not to eleven, but to twelve. This scattering began with the Exodus. James's epistle was wrote before the famous Jewish diaspora of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So the Jews have one diaspora, but the Israelites were already scattered abroad, all twelve tribes. James chapter 1. This scattering began, and James was actually slain in the temple in Jerusalem in about 62 AD by Edomite Jews related to the family of the high priest. This scattering began with the Exodus, and it did not end until the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem after 585 BC. Only a very small portion of two tribes ever returned to Judea. And the historian Josephus, as well as the biblical literature, 
fully agree. But Josephus also informs us, as does the apocryphal book of Esdras, known as Second Esdras, that there are but two tribes in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans, while the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates, beyond Euphrates, that's like north of Judea, north of Syria, up into Armenia and the Caucasus Mountains, are beyond Euphrates until now, when Josephus wrote, Diodorus and Strabo were informing us that the Scythians inhabited that very same area. And I've never seen evidence in history or in archaeology that there were an immense multitude of Jews up there. While the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates until now and are an immense multitude and not to be estimated by numbers. Josephus Antiquities. That group of Israelites beyond Euphrates lived in Armenia and Iberia in modern Georgia, and they had for many centuries been migrating north through the Caucasus Mountains. Armenia was on the south side of the mountains, Iberia, which actually means refers to something on the other side of something, was on the north side of the mountains just like there was an Iberia named by Hebrews on the other side of the Mediterranean. That was a different Iberia. That group of Israelites described by Josephus beyond the Euphrates lived in Armenia and Iberia in modern Georgia and they had for many centuries been migrating north through the Caucasus Mountains. Among them were the Alans and Goths who accepted Christianity long before Rome ever accepted it. Several tribes of the Greeks, the Trojans, the Illyrians, and the Romans themselves, the Iberians of the West, the original inhabitants of Britain and Ireland, the Phoenicians of Northern Africa, and the British Isles, and Western Europe. All of these had descended from the people who fled Egypt, or from the people who migrated west out of the seaports of Tyre and Dor and the other seaports of the Levant in early times. And all of these things are recorded in classics. Later the Germanic tribes came from immigrations into Europe by tribes that passed through the Caucasus Mountains and the areas around the Black and Caspian Seas. There are many historical essays at Christiania which provide all of the details of these migrations and they are based on classical literature as well as upon the Bible and archaeology. What difference does it make? If the Bible is our heritage, we had better stop mocking our own ancestors for accepting Christianity, because evidently they were only fulfilling their God-appointed destiny by doing so. Should we really think that our ancestors were too fucking dumb to know what was going on in the world up until their own time. Oh, they were just a bunch of dumb rednecks sitting in the woods in Europe and the Romans came along and made them accept Christianity, right? They were that dumb. Should we really think that our ancestors were so weak in their own beliefs that they accepted a religion received from sand fleas and niggers? 
Those who mock or scoff at Christianity are pissing all over the graves of 80 generations of their own fathers and mothers. Only a few tribes were ever forcibly converted to Christianity. Among those were the Saxons. When the Islamic hordes invaded France and the Christian ruler Charles Martel raised an army to defeat them, he had enemies to his rear. The Saxons were looting and pillaging the towns and villages of the Franks in the east along the Rhine borderlands. So for two generations Charles's sons defended themselves against the Saxons until Charlemagne finally defeated them and forced them to convert. I believe Charlemagne was his great-grandson. From that time the civilizing effect that Christianity, that Christianity had on the converted Saxons then gave birth to one of the world's greatest societies, which we can probably reckon from the time of Otto I, who was born in the year 912. He, in turn, defended the West against the Slavs, and eventually the Slavs were conquered and Christianized by the Saxons for very much the same reason. Some of them were Christianized later on by the Greeks. The pagans in these cases were the aggressors. The Slavs, when they were pagans, were aggressors into Saxon Germany. The Saxons, when they were pagans, were aggressors against the Franks. The pagans were the aggressors. And the Christians were tired of the aggression. We would assert that Christianity was what our ancestors had departed from before they went off into paganism and their return to Christianity was a fulfillment of ancient biblical prophecy that they would eventually return to the real religion of their most ancient ancestors. As James had written to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, so did Paul of Tarsus, who professed that his commission was to bear the name of Christ before both the nations and the kings of the sons of Israel, which we see in Acts chapter 15. Then later, after the Jews had him arrested, he professed that, I stand and am judge for the hope of the promise made by God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes hope to come, for which hope's sake I am accused of the Jews. In Acts chapter 26. The twelve tribes, in the estimation of Paul of Tarsus, are therefore distinct from the Jews. Of course, one of those twelve tribes would have had to be Judah, and even they are distinct from the Jews in the eyes of Paul. James wrote to twelve tribes scattered abroad, not to ten or eleven. Paul saw Christianity as a fulfillment of promises to the fathers. Paul never said the Christianity was for anyone who was not of those fathers. Christianity is not a religion. The apostles were not delivering a religion. Rather, Christianity is a racial covenant and an inheritance promised by God to a particular race 
by which they should abandon worldly religion. If our ancestors really accepted a Jewish religion, they'd be twirling chickens over their heads and fucking little boys. If our ancestors really accepted a Jewish religion or a religion that loves niggers, then we all deserve to be slaves forever because of their stupidity. But if we are actually the descendants of the people of that book, as even the ancient Greek historians recognized to a great degree, then we had better honor our ancestors. Because they made the right choice after all. That is what difference it makes. We choose to believe in our own literature and follow our own ancestors, or we surrender ourselves to the Jews and accept all of their lies. That is the difference it makes, and it's about time we got it. Here I want to turn to an internal, an internal biblical subject and discuss why Moses was selected for the position which he was put into by God. And let me say that the proof that Moses was put into that position by God is found in the fact that his name is in every household today, Christian and not. And if we despise Moses, well, we have already shown that four of our own ancient pagan historians, whose works our ancestors preserved for many generations, did not despise him. Rather, they esteemed him as a lawgiver and a founder of cities. If we despise Moses, we despise, we must despise, I'm sorry, Theodore Siculus, Strabo of Cappadocia, and Hecatahius of Abdera, who are all pagan Greek historians who testify quite favorably of Moses. That same Strabo informed us in Book 16 of his geography that in his own time the Judeans were all mixed up with the Edomians or Edomites and that they were sharing the same customs. Moses, who was from 1500 years before Strabo, was not one of those mixed Edomite Judeans. If you believe that the Israelites of the Old Testament were Jews, then you are a victim of the Jews. In the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, which are the work of the Jews, we see the following boast from Protocol number 16. We shall change history. Classicism, as also any form of study of ancient history, in which there are more bad than good examples, we shall replace with the study of the program of the future, which is nigger loving. That's my interjection. I'm sorry. No, I'm not, but I am. We shall erase from the memory of men all facts of previous centuries which are undesirable to us and leave only those which depict all the errors of the government of the Goyim. The Jews have controlled the printing presses for 500 years. If you think that Jews are telling you the truth about the classics, the Bible, and ancient history, you deserve to be their slaves. 
The Jews are giving you a narrative full of lies designed to enslave you to them. A narrative which rejects the classics and the Bible and ancient history. And you have accepted those lies and you have accepted the Jews because you believe their lies. When Moses organized the Israelites into a kingdom, he set down in writing an agrarian calendar. Had the Jews ever been into agriculture? Then he wrote out the laws, and an examination of those laws shows that they are opposed to all of the activities which the Jews have always favored, promoted, and engaged in for themselves. The laws are against usury. They are against pandering. They are against mercantile cheating and unfair exchanges of goods. They are against divorce, homosexuality, and fornication, which is race mixing. They are even against pharmaceuticals, which are sorcery, and necromancy, and such things as tarot cards and soothsaying. Everything the Jew represents, the law of Moses opposes. The Talmud upholds pedophilia. The Quran upholds pedophilia. The Bible doesn't even mention pedophilia because to white men and women pedophilia is unthinkable. If the Bible was a Jewish book there'd be baby boogering on every page. As I often like to say if Moses was a Jew the Torah would have been a banking manual rather than a code of law which enforces morality with the penalty of death. If Joshua and the Israelites were Jews, they would have invaded Canaan with briefcases and pencils rather than with axes and swords. If Jesus were a Jew, he would have been doing, he would have been doing stand-up comedy instead of parables. The Bible is the least Jewish book in print today and one of the only books printed in large numbers which is opposed to everything Jewish. But I digress. Returning to my subject, if we can answer the question as to why Moses, it can help to answer the question as to what difference does it make. The following is extracted from our presentation of Acts chapter 7. It's actually redacted. Given here in June of 2013. In that chapter of Acts, the martyr Stephen offers a defense of the Christian faith and recounts the life of Moses. So he says, and as Moses, I'm sorry, and as 40 years time were completed by him, meaning Moses, he put up in his heart to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. Moses' coming of age is now about 40 years old, which is Stephen's intent. And seeing one being done wrong, he defended him and made an avenging for him who was being subdued, smiting the Egyptian. No problem killing an Egyptian. It's not a moral issue. Moses was raised in the household of Pharaoh and must have had all of the privileges of a member of the royal family. Yet he risked his enjoyment of these worldly luxuries 
for the benefit of defending a lowly man, a slave, because that lowly man was one of his own tribesmen. For this, Moses had been selected by Yahweh as the man who would lead his people out of Egypt. Ostensibly, this is the point that Stephen is making, and which he, by which he hoped that his own contemporaries would learn from by example. That Moses, regardless of his high station, acted contrary to his own interests and stood against the institutions of his own time in favor of those of his own race. So Moses was therefore employed by Yahweh God as his instrument of their redemption from Egypt. Paul in Hebrews chapter 11 says of Moses in part, By faith Moses, being born, was hid three months by his fathers because they saw the handsome child and did not fear the ordinance of the king to expose all the male children. By faith Moses, becoming full-grown, refused to be called a son of the daughter of Pharaoh, rather preferring to be mistreated with the people of Yahweh than to have the temporary rewards of error, having esteemed the reproach of the anointed, the people of Israel, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, since he had regard for reward. So Stephen continues to describe the life of Moses, and he says, And he expected the brethren, the people of his own race, to understand that God through his hand gives deliverance to them, but they did not understand. In this day, identity Christians wonder when our own people, who are locked into the paradigms of this world, will awaken to the fact that they are once again in bondage, and that their own attitudes concerning race and righteousness have been taught to them by the very ones who would hold them in that bondage, the international Jews. The concept of political correctness which holds sway over, over their minds is an invention of the Jewish masters who rule over them, that they may retain that rule without difficulty. Here we see that an Israelite in bondage would despise another Israelite who delivered him, rather than being grateful for any relief he was granted from his oppressor. Our people are little different today. And they shriek, Oh no, God loves everybody. The Bible's for everybody. Well, Moses was rewarded for killing an Egyptian in favor of a slave. Stephen continues, Then the next day he appeared to those who were fighting, and he reconciled them in peace, saying, Men, you are brothers. For what reason do you do wrong to one another? But he doing wrong to he near to him rejected him, saying, Who appointed you ruler and judge over us? You do not desire do you not desire to kill me in the manner that you killed the Egyptian yesterday? As it is today it was then also that the righteousness of the children of Israel was after the reckoning of man rather than of God, and this man was more concerned even for his dead oppressor than he was for the men of his own race. 
According to Stephen, Moses was already some somehow cognizant of his mission to free his people Israel. However, the people rejecting him, Moses would flee from Egypt, and it would be another 40 years before he returned and fulfilled his mission. Our people have much the same attitude today, where because the church the churches teach them lies. When they are informed of their sins, they respond, Who appointed you ruler and judge over us? It is understandable that here the phrase that I have cited as I translated it, but he doing wrong, the Israelite aggressor, to he near to him, the Israelite being fought with by the aggressor, rejected him, meaning rejected the admonishment of Moses. And that's a little difficult to read, and it would be easier to read if it were rendered, but he doing wrong to his neighbor rejected him. The usual Greek word translated as neighbor is the adverb plesion, which literally means near or close to. But in the Bible, this does not indicate a closeness in geography, or the Egyptian would have also been a neighbor. Rather, it indicates a closeness in relationship. The nigger that lives next door to you is not your neighbor. But the Saxon who lives in the next state or across the country, he is your neighbor, so long as you're a Saxon or so long as you are from one of the kindred white European family groups. The Hebrew word in the original context of the command that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, which is found in Leviticus chapter 19, is reah, a word which is derived from a root, a similar root that means to tend a flock, to pasture it, or to graze. And generally, it can mean to rule or, by extension, to associate with someone. And therefore, it is apparent that if one is a member of the flock, then one's placeon or neighbor must be of one same race, your associate, if you're grazing in a pasture and you're a sheep, can only be a fellow sheep. It can't be the lion that came into the flock to devour the sheep. So we see that if one is of your flock, he is a neighbor. But if one is not of your flock, he cannot ever be a neighbor. Rather, he is an intruder. The Egyptian was not a neighbor. The term for neighbor is defined in the same manner where it first appears in the Bible in Leviticus chapter 19, and it says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So we see that one's neighbor must also be one of the children of thy people. Or he can't be a neighbor. The, only the people of your own race can be your neighbor, as the Bible and the meanings of the Hebrew words certainly proves. In our last Wednesday night Bible study, just three days ago, 
We discuss another episode where it is evident that Moses loved his own race even more than he loved himself in Exodus chapter 32. Loving one's race more than oneself is the ideal Christian principle. It is the premier example of Christ, and it is an ideal which every white man and woman should be happy to embrace. Moses loved his people even when they reached the dregs of existence in their sin. And of course, that is also the example of Christ himself. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses is on Mount Sinai with Yahweh, where he spent 40 days recording the law. But during that time, the children of Israel incited Aaron to make the golden calf which was also the pagan religion of Cadmus, Minos, and Sarpedon. And they began to debauch themselves in sin. So upon that circumstance we read, And Yahweh said unto Moses, Get thee down. In other words, get down there and see what the hell they're doing. Get thee down, for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly, out of the way which I commanded them. And they have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them. And I will make of thee, meaning Moses, a great nation, so Yahweh's hanging this carrot in front of Moses' face. And Moses besought Yahweh his God and said, Yahweh, why does thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath, and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and sayest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And here it is apparent that upon the sins of the people Yahweh is testing Moses. It seems that he is not really going to destroy them immediately because he told Moses to go down to them. If he were going to destroy them immediately, he would have warned Moses to remain where he was because there he was safe. But nevertheless, Yahweh tried Moses, offering for Moses himself to become a great nation if he should destroy the people. We can imagine that many men may be selfish and beg Yahweh to do it. Oh yeah, Lord, they deserve it. Beat their asses, exterminate every one of them. They're sinners, wanting to exalt themselves. But Moses was selfless. He disregarded the offer of his own magnification. And instead, he pleaded with Yahweh to preserve the people on account of the promises to the fathers. We should all have that same care for our white brethren in the world, whether or not they are sinners. And because Moses was 
faithful to his people. His name is a household name among white Christians to this very day. And he was even famous among the pagan Greeks, as we see from Hecatahius, Theodorus, and Strabo. Now, we are going to present an essay by Inez Campere. She was, she was the wife of Bertrand Campere. While I do not entirely approve of women writing and teaching, this is more of a message of encouragement than it is of instruction. Bertrand Campere allowed and must have encouraged his wife to do this, and it was she who presented this message in his assembly. We do not have such a history of women being permitted I'm sorry, we do have such a history of women being permitted at certain times to do similar things. Deborah the prophetess, Deborah the prophetess, being one of the more notable of such women. The song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5 is invaluable. We believe that the men of that time were slack in their obligations. Actually, Barak was a feminist. And Deborah was raised up to be a reproach and an example to them. The men of this time are also slack in their own obligations. And that is why we have feminism, as a punishment and a reproach to such men. The message is appropriate to our discussion. And it is actually the reason why we have had it. Because it is a message of necessity and exhortation relative to our present circumstances. So we shall offer a criticism as we present. Suppose we are Israel. What difference does it make? By Inez Campere. And this was prepared from an audio recording and edited with notes by Clifton Emmeheiser, probably about 15 years ago. I do not have the original recording posted at hand, but there may be one in Clifton's library, which we hope to catalog one day soon, one day in the future. I can't make promises. I have an extensive tape library here from Clifton, and it's probably, I don't know, it's hundreds and hundreds of tapes, and a lot of them are online, but they have to be gone through and evaluated and digitized and that takes an awful lot of time. Inez Campere begins by asking, what would you say to me if you knew I had discovered that I was the heir to a vast estate, great wealth and responsibility, but instead of rejoicing in the great privilege and turning to the work with all of its great issues, I simply said, well, if I am the heir, what difference does it make? I, I know what you would think, even if you didn't say it. Of course, you would think, well, she's nuts. Yet, when we show from the Bible and from history and archaeology that the Anglo-Saxon and kindred people are the modern-day descendants of the House of Israel, to whom Yahweh has pledged with his oath so many great privileges and blessings, many say indifferently, what difference does it make? They only want personal salvation. Now the man who has the blessing of personal salvation is the recipient of a marvelous gift of God through Yahshua. This doesn't warrant his despising and rejecting the other birthright, the birthright of race. And here I must interject, 
that the promises of personal salvation in Scripture are narrow and usually refer to temporal salvation, salvation here in this life. But the Scripture is replete with blanket promises of eternal salvation for the entire race of the Adamic people. or the entire nation of the children of Israel. These are the promises upon which we should focus because we should love our people, our brethren, more than we love ourselves. Inez continues, The Bible, as given by Yahweh, is a complete whole. It stands or falls in one piece. It declares the whole counsel of Yahweh, and it requires nothing short of the whole book to declare it. Otherwise, much of it would not have been written. It is not for man to go through the book sorting and picking, deciding what he wishes to accept, and then say about the rest, what difference does it make? To do so is the height of presumption. This challenge we face all of the time where the scripture says all Israel shall be saved or where it says in Christ all Adamic men shall be made alive and there are identity Christians who simply do not want to believe it so they go off on a rampage of picking and choosing as Inez Capare describes now she says Yahweh in his wisdom chose Israel to be used by him in his great plan for the transformation of a lost world. He wrote a large portion of the Bible to tell us about Israel's part in that plan. There was ample space allowed in the Bible for the presentation of the gospel to the individual. Yahweh wrote about five-sixths of the Bible as his message to the nations. Related to almost every phase of his revelation are the great nations of Israel promised by Yahweh to Abraham. And we must say that contemporary to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, the phrase refers to the Adamic Genesis 10 nations, not to the nations of the other races. However, Abraham's seed was to inherit those nations and ultimately to inherit the earth. So prophetically, and the prophecy was fulfilled by the time of Christ, the phrase refers to the nations of the promise to Abraham, as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 4. So she continues, Infidel critics are busy all the time knifing the scriptures, cutting out a bit here and a bit there. But the what difference does it make folks throw away five-sixths of the Bible in one lump? Five-sixths of the Bible is a lot to scrap. And let me say that the traditional Christians, the Eastern Orthodox Christians, the traditional Catholic Christians are all among those five-sixths. And we should probably up that figure to about 14 sixteenths. They're all amongst that crowd which asks, what difference does it make? They totally disregard the entire substance of the national message for Israel, which is just as active in the New Testament as it is in the Old. Continuing with Inez, 
Actually, the Israel identity truth is the key, and it certainly is. It is the key which opens up the Bible from the first promise made at the fall of Adam until Yahshua delivers up the finished kingdom to Yahweh. Speaking of Christ, it may be likened to a spiritual thread which runs through almost every chapter of Bible history, every doctrine, symbol, promise, and covenant. The thread which, when found, makes possible the unraveling of most of the mysteries of the word. This is why the people who see the truth have declared the Bible to be a new book, consistent, harmonious, and satisfying to mind and soul. Actually, almost everywhere Paul spoke of a mystery, he professed that he was explaining that mystery, and that is the mystery of the identity of the household of Yahweh, the identity of the true Israelites who were cast off centuries before Christ, who were being reconciled to God through Christ. Paul having made known those mysteries, they are no longer mysteries because he had made them known. He announced their meanings. So Inez continues and she says, centuries ago, Yahweh made an unconditional, irrevocable covenant with Abraham to increase and preserve his posterity throughout all generations. Now here we are, the many nations of Israel, right here on the planet after almost 4,000 years, doing the work that he said Israel would do. Psalm 105 verse 8 promises, he remembers his covenant forever, the word he has commanded to a thousand generations the covenant he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, for he confirmed it to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an eternal covenant. And not only, not only that, but the introduction to the purpose of Christ in the Gospel of Luke announces that he came, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all that hate us, the niggers, the Jews, the squat monsters, the street shitters, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Then in Romans chapter 15, Paul of Tarsus professed that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Where Paul was a messenger to the nations, the ancient cast-off Israelites who were no longer keeping the circumcision and were therefore called uncircumcised. We serve God by keeping his commandments and loving our brethren, as Christ had explained in John chapters 13 through 15. But now, when we attempt to serve and love our own brethren, our own, those of our own race, the world attacks us and tries to make us fear. Exactly what we see that Christ is promised to deliver us from in Luke chapter 1. And yes, I'm typing now. And this leads me to another digression. 
which repeats what I have already said. Our remote Christian ancestors read these same passages. They actually understood the meanings better than we do because they didn't have the corrupted translation problems. And they had no problem believing them and assuming their identity in them for themselves. Should we imagine that our ancestors were too dumb to read? We have already proven several months ago here in the Book of Odes, which is found in the Codex Alexandrinus, that early Christians formulated Christian identity liturgy. It is the Jews who have changed history, as we read in the Protocols of Satan, Protocols of Zion. And when we believe what they say, we are believing a lie. And they did not start corrupting history in the 19th or 20th centuries. Rather, they have been corrupting it all along, everywhere that they can infiltrate for 5,000 years. Read Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 8. And read First Chronicles chapter 2 to find out who the scribes were in Judah. Returning to Inez Compare. The writers of the four Gospels constantly call attention to Yahweh's faithfulness to Abraham. The apostles gloried in it. But you say, what difference does it make? It made quite a difference to Esau, who despised his birthright of race. So he was rejected. Afterwards he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. The birthright of race made quite a difference to Ishmael, who was also rejected. The son of the bondwoman Hagar. The birthright of race also made quite a difference to the sons of Keturah. Esau, Ishmael, and Keturah were all originally white. Yahweh simply cast them aside in favor of Isaac, in favor of Jacob, because he even discriminates amongst whites. The sin of Esau is plainly stated by Paul of Tarsus who called Esau a profane man and a fornicator, which is a race mixer. That's why he really lost his birthright. That's how he really despised it. He was an oil driller. The accounts in Genesis clearly show that Paul's assessment is accurate. She continues, Suppose we are Israel then we are the descendants of Abraham through Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. There is a world of difference in the blessings of race, country, enlightenment, and opportunity bestowed upon the descendants of these people than that which was bestowed upon the others. Does the fact that a man is saved eternally preclude the possibility of his appreciating the civil blessings which he enjoys under the Abrahamic covenant in these Israel countries? A short stay in the lands of the dictators would show the difference and be quite convincing. Actually, all of the other peoples were eventually cursed, and even the other white nations were never blessed since the days of Noah. Now that our race has fallen into sin, the other races are being used to chastise us, and they appear to be blessed, but upon our imminent redemption they shall all be destroyed. 
That is the promise of the word of God. That is what Yahweh promised us. And to attain it, all we must do is repent. We will be punished until we repent. Inez continues. In Isaiah chapter 51 verse 2, Yahweh says, Hearken unto me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek Yahweh. Look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and unto the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. And this is a Hebrew parallelism. Abraham is the rock, Sarah is the hole of the pit. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bear you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. She says, you follow after that righteousness. You that follow after righteousness are certainly the Christians, and we see that Yahweh wants them to see that they are Abraham's seed. And in Romans chapter 4, and that is exactly the sense of Isaiah, Inez Compre is exactly correct, Isaiah chapter 51, Yahweh wants the people that follow after righteousness to see that they are Abraham's seed, so long as they are Abraham's seed. In Romans chapter 4, in Galatians chapter 3, and Galatians chapter 4, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul of Tarsus explained how the nations to whom he brought the gospel were indeed the seed of Abraham. And the classical and archaeological records prove it. She continues, In Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, Yahweh promises, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and between thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Can it be possible, she asks, that it means nothing to the believer to be chosen of Yahweh as an heir of that covenant, which in all of its ramifications Yahweh unfolds throughout the remainder of the scriptures. This being among the promises to the fathers which Christ had come to fulfill. If we are not those people, then our ancient ancestors turned to Christ in vain, and we, being so stupid, we deserve to be ruled over by Jews. However, if our ancestors knew what they were doing when they turned to Christ, then we are the children of God, and it is time to repent and to rid ourselves of every Jew, and all of the other races as well, because our inheritance is unique and exclusive to our race. Returning to Inez Compare. Suppose we are Israel, then we are the members of Yahweh's kingdom here on earth. He established that kingdom at Sinai. Constituting that kingdom were the twelve tribes of Israel. Matthew chapter 21 verse 43 tells us plainly that he took the kingdom from the Jews and turned it over to a nation. The Greek word is ethnos. Don't tell me it was given to a church, for the Greek word for church is almost ecclesia. That nation was to bring forth the fruits of the kingdom. Those fruits were both political and religious. Actually, those fruits were political, religious, racial, racial, social, and every other aspect of life. If we read the Revelation, 
at the very end of history, at the very end of the prophecy of the Revelation, at the very end of this world age as we know it, a city of God descends from heaven, and the names on the gates of that city of God are the twelve, the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And Paul distinguished them from the Jews. None of them are Jews. But if your name isn't on one of those gates, if you're not of one of those twelve tribes, don't think you're getting into that city. That's why the names are on the gates. Jerusalem did represent, at one time, the kingdom of God on earth. But by the time of Christ, it was a multi-ethnic cesspool. God had promised to destroy it forever, all the way back 600 years before that time in the book of Jeremiah. It had to be taken from them, and all of that is a matter of biblical prophecy. She continues, True to Yahshua, Yahshua Christ's assignment, the Israel nations lead the world in evangelistic work, missionary work, Bible translation, publication and distribution. The United States and the British Commonwealth hold the record for 90% of this work. And this is true, but it is not all good. There is no commission to take the word of God to any other race. And any Bible verse which suggests such a thing is poorly translated, taken out of its historical context, and poorly understood. Christ said, I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. James wrote to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. He didn't write to non-Israelites. Every one of Paul of Tarsus' epistles shows that he was writing to people that he expected to be the descendants of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And actually, grace, Inez mentions grace here, the covenant of grace, Actually, grace is first prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31, where it is speaking of all of the Israelites who survived to go into Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. And it says, Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest, so the most significant promise of grace in the Old Testament is a national promise and not merely a personal one. Inez continues, It does not require much research to find many texts in which Yahweh reveals the exalted position given the chosen race. A few of them are Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 4. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, for I have redeemed thee. Now this is a prophecy of Christ. So we see who it was that Christ was to redeem. For I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by my name. We became Christians. Thou art mine. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. First Kings chapter 8 continues. Thou didst separate them from among all the people of the earth to be thine inheritance. 
Psalm 135 says, For Yahweh has chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for a peculiar treasure. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 reads, For thou art a holy people, meaning a set-apart people. Yahweh thy God has chosen thee to be a peculiar people under oneself, above all the nations that are upon the earth. She says, Note the honors that are conferred. He chose them, he redeemed them, he claimed them for his own, he separated them, calls them precious, his peculiar treasure, his special people, his inheritance above all the people on the earth. Think of any believer reading all of that and then turning upon his heel and saying, Suppose we are Israel, what difference does it make? If our white race are not the Israel of the Bible, then we are nothing, and it makes no sense whatsoever for the apostles of Christ to bring the gospel of Christ to Europe. They never tried to bring it to niggers, street shitters, or Chinamen. She continues in response to the question, what difference does it make? And she says, it rejects Yahweh's comfort for the last days. Yahweh was anxious that his people Israel should have a clear vision of all that was to come to pass in these trying times. Consequently, he sent prophet after prophet, telling of world conditions which we would experience in our day. But right with the cataclysmic upheavals that were foretold, there was always a word of cheer, consolation, and encouragement to his people Israel. He wanted us to have the benefit of knowing what he is doing in the world, what world events actually mean, how he is going to make it all work out to the good of his people Israel and through all that is happening. Bring in the kingdom of Yahweh on earth. The kingdom of Yahweh is the one theme of the Bible. It is the theme Yahshua preached. In Romans chapter 15, Paul tells us that Yahshua came to confirm the promises made under the fathers. If Christianity is for everyone, then that is a denial of the promises. So Christianity cannot be for everyone. It cannot. We cannot interpret a book in a manner which denies what the book says. Who the hell does that with any other book? What if your book was a manual on how to operate your gas range and you just blatantly ignored everything it said? Maybe stuff your kids in there after their bath. I hope you're a Jew. After their bath to dry them off. Or, or other stupid things like that. Who denies, who interprets any book with an absolute denial of what the book says? That's only done with the Bible. It's only done with the Bible because the Jews taught us how to read the Bible. These last few hundred years... 1,500 years ago, our ancestors read their own Bible. They didn't have these problems. They didn't have a Jewish problem. They knew the Jews were devils, and they ostracized them from society. If Christianity is for everyone, then that is a denial of the promises spelled out in the Old Testament and in the New. So Christianity cannot be for everyone. 
And if we do not realize who we are, we will never know what to do when Babylon, when that globalist mercantile system finally falls and we hear the call to avenge our enemies because that time is coming. Back to Inez, she asks, What is the worth of our identity as Israel? It proves Yahweh to be unchangeably faithful because if other people are Israel today then the Bible is garbage because you can't trust any of its language if you can't trust any of its language how can you believe it if seed don't mean seed and fathers don't mean fathers what are you doing if we are Israel it proves Yahweh to be unchangeably faithful it proves God to be true it proves the Bible to be literally and historically true. It proves Yahweh is working today as the prophets have foretold that he would, that he would work in, through, and for his people Israel. Israel which is today known as the Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, and Germanic people. And I would throw in a few other groups. Lastly, but by no means least, it proves Yahshua did what he came to do, to confirm the promises made to the fathers. In other words, if the Jews are Israel, which is a historical impossibility, then God is a complete failure. And we should not even care about our race, because there is no salvation or redemption. That is the very conclusion which the Jew wants you to arrive at, so that he can destroy you and you have no defense. While we have already echoed some of his sentiments, here we shall present the critical notes made by Clifton Emmerheiser when he prepared this for his website. I will reiterate here that the woman, Inez Compare, the wife of Bertrand, puts a lot of men to shame for her insight. I still contend that if the men aren't doing their job, the women must step in and do it for them. I say this because we have a whole myriad of male wannabe pastors and teachers today whose only pleasure is to see how, out of context, they can twist the scripture. With this presentation by Inez, she shows her insight to be superior to that of many men. I know it is a woman's place, under ordinary circumstances, to exercise a supporting role behind her husband. But today we are not living in ordinary times. There are three general categories into which these male wannabes fall, and many women wannabes as well. These are one sea line, no sea line, and universalism. And Clifton is, for the most part, addressing identity Christians. Inez made a very good point when she said it is not for a man to go through the book sorting and picking, deciding what he wishes to accept and then say about the rest, what difference does it make? To do so is the height of presumption. Now here I think Clifton goes a little bit off track. He says, but I do not give Inez a 100% appraisal on this subject either. Your evaluation may differ from mine. I can only point out where I disagree with some of her statements, and I'm sure that her commentary mirrors some of her husband's views. Mrs. Compare said the birthright of race made quite a difference to Ishmael, the son of the bondwoman Hagar. To this I would reply, 
It is very possible that the bondwoman Hagar may have been white, but today's Ishmaelites show a distinct countenance of being mixed with the term which the term Arab means. The term Arab means mixed. Well, the term Arab certainly does mean mixed. And Clifton is right that Compare believed that the Arabs were Ishmael, or at least sometimes he believed that. And he was wrong about that. The Arabs are not Ishmael, even though some of the Arabs descended from Ishmael, ostensibly. They are not Ishmael any more than the son of a German man with a negress could be German. The son, a, a half-nigger, cannot be German. I'm sorry, he can't be. So a uh, half-nigger cannot be Ishmael either, because Ishmael certainly was white. There's no reason to believe that his mother Hagar was not white. She was simply an Egyptian of a tribe that Yahweh did not want in his own bloodline. Here Clifton interpreted Inez Compare's statement the opposite of how I have interpreted it. I would say that the birthright of race did make a difference to Ishmael because he was excluded, not because he had any hope to ever be included. Clifton apparently did not consider the possibility that the birthright of race makes a difference to those who are on the wrong end of the equation, as well as to those who are chosen. Nevertheless, we will continue with Clifton's note, which has value because many in Israel identity are indeed confused with the nature of today's Arabs. At least this was certainly the case. It was definitely the case when Clifton put this into writing. I remember some of the disputes that we had while I was in prison, going back and forth with certain identity pastors who thought that the Arabs were okay because they were Ishmael. The Arabs cannot be okay because they are bastards, and bastards are never okay, ever, under any circumstances. Clifton says, in my brochure, titled, Both Jews and Arabs are Serpent Seed. I stated, One cannot fully comprehend the racial makeup of the Arabs and Jews unless he understands the history of Egypt from A.D. 639 until the time of Napoleon I in 1798. The history of Egypt during this period is essentially the history of the entire Middle East. Genghis Khan, in his exploits, left a Mongol genetic flavor to the population wherever he conquered new territory. Egypt, during this period, found herself under various rulerships. In AD 639, the Arabs invaded Egypt and came to power. Next were the Fatimids in AD 909. After this came the Ayyubids in 1174. Then in 1517 came the Mamelukes, followed by the Ottomans when Egypt was governed from Istanbul. If you don't understand the history of the Middle East during this period, don't pretend you know all about the Arabs and Jews of today. Jeremiah understood the mixed genetic nature of the Ishmaelites when he said in chapter 25, verse 24, All the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mingled people that dwell in the desert. 
This verse is also a Hebrew parallelism. A Hebrew parallelism is a grammatical device which is used very often in scripture, which, men which mentions or describes the same person, object, or entity in two different ways consecutively. There are entire chapters that are parallelisms with other chapters. For instance, Genesis 2 parallels the end of Genesis 1 to a great degree. And Ezekiel 38 is a parallelism with Ezekiel chapter 39. And the prophecy in Ezekiel, I think it's in 20-something, 27, 28, of the Prince of Tyre is really a parallelism for the prophecy that precedes it of the King of Tyre. They're all parallelisms. Something is described one way, and immediately afterwards it's described another way. They're not consecutive. They're not talking about different entities. It's sometimes difficult to recognize a parallelism. But the kings of Arabia and the kings of the mingled people are one and the same group. This is a parallelism. The word Arab, as Clifton explains, means mixed. He goes on and quotes from the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia, Volume 2, page 398. Under the topic Arabs, we read the following. The people of the Arab world have no single origin. Although Arab culture was associated in early times with the Arabian Peninsula, over the centuries many different peoples have become Arabized through adoption of the Arabic language and other features of Arab culture. For nearly all Arabization was through Islam, the major religion of the Arab world. The Arabs are as diverse physically as they are in ethnic origin. There is no Arab racial type. I would say that it probably is. We could call it mud. There is no Arab racial type. Some Arabs do fit the stereotyped picture, lean and hawk-nosed, with darkish skin and black hair. But these features are in no sense typical. Negroid Arabs are similar in appearance to sub-Saharan Africans, and light-skinned Arabs are physically indistinguishable from most Europeans. And actually, I would say that not most but many Europeans are Arabs. They're in Greece, they're in Rome, they're in Italy, they're in Turkey, they're in the Iberian Peninsula, they're in Sicily, they're in a lot of places. Many Europeans are Arabs. And I don't know if Inez truly considered the entire history of Europe when she made that statement. But actually, the process of Arabization in Arabia began in the third millennium before Christ. The peninsula was inhabited by an assortment of Adamic tribes, descendants of Shem and Ham, but also by various other groups, the Kenites, the Rephaim, the Canaanites, and several tribes listed in Genesis chapter 15, whose origin is unknown. They're not found in the descendants of Adam in Genesis chapter 10.
Add to this the Edomites, the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, and the other children of Keturah, and the Moabites and Ammonites. And by the end of the Hellenistic period, most of these people, who all intermingled over many centuries, were so mixed up that they had lost any sense of their original identity. To compound the issue, Persians, Greeks, Romans, and others moved into the area over 500 years before Christ. But once the dawn of Islam came, which was contrived by Jews that had been ostracized from the Byzantine Empire, other elements, Negroes, Turks, and Mongols were introduced, as Clifton describes it here. And religious Jews, as well as original Arabs, the ancient Canaanites and Edomites, mixed themselves with all of these along the way. Islam, the most significant religion of bastardization, ruled over the entire Middle East for over 1,200 years. It also ruled large parts of Europe for quite some time. It ruled over Greece and part of the Balkans for 400 years from the fall of Constantinople and, and in fact Constantinople was very small when it fell. The Turks had already held all of Anatolia and some of the area, the, the Greek area on the European side since the 14th century and then in the 15th century in 1453 when Constantinople fell the Turks and the Arabs, the Muslims, had ruled over Greece and the Balkans as well as parts of what we know as Bulgaria today and, and Yugoslavia for 400 years until 1825. In 1825 the British got control of Greece from the Turks. So anyone who thinks that the modern people of the Middle and Near East are the same as the ancient people of those regions is just stuck on stupid. Clifton continues, in the 1200s Genghis Khan sold a company of slaves to the Sultan of Egypt and made up of made up of Turks and Caucasians, people who inhabited the Caucasus, not to be confused with the white Caucasians, to become the Sultan's bodyguards, and were also trained as soldiers. Soon the Mamelukes overthrew the Egyptian Sultan and put their own Sultan in power. The Mameluke Sultans then overran Asia Minor, Syria, and the island of Cyprus. In the wake of all of these Arab and Turkic exploits, the population was left with a multiracial flavor. I could go on quoting a great deal more evidence showing the racial makeup of the Arabs today, but the space here will not allow it. Also, Inez stated well that the Greek word ethnos, don't tell me it, the kingdom, was given to a church, for the Greek word for church is ecclesia, meaning that there must be a nation of people, a people of common background and heritage, who are the kingdom of God in the world today. Other parts of the scriptures certainly inform us that that distinction does belong to our white race.
This concludes our presentation, and anyone who considers what we have said should be able to answer it by now. Answer by now what difference it does make. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the eternal enemy of the Jews and niggers and street shitters and all those other cursed peoples. And good night. You know that I'm loving you In a God of a freedom, baby Don't you know that I'll always be true Oh, won't you come with me And I'll take my hand Oh, won't you come with me In a God of a Vita, honey, don't you know that I love you? In a God of a Vita, baby, don't you know that I